0: Colossians chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible with you and you don't like using the app on your phone, you can grab the Bible that's in that pew rack right in front of you. Turn to page 985, if you would. That is where you will find the last chapter of the book of Colossians. Uh, We only have this week and next week left in this series, by the way. We have almost reached the finish line. Uh, But if you are a guest with us, we want you to know from the beginning of this message that we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God himself. Uh, inerrant in the original manuscripts, sovereignly preserved through, uh, for us through the generations, so that through the reading of this book and the illumination of his spirit, we can know God, and, and we can love him, and, and we can follow him, and we can worship him. And, and we as a church believe so much in the sufficiency of scripture that we don't think that what I have to say today matters at all unless it agrees with what God has said in his word. We want to collectively be a church that believes it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says. So what the Bible says needs to become what we Think, and this is why we want you to see God's word for yourself from Colossians chapter 4. Uh, if, if you haven't been with us throughout the, our, our time in Colossians, we've been taking our time going through this relatively small book, and our purpose for doing so is that we would see the supremacy and the centrality of Christ in everything, including our own lives and our relationships. Uh, Colossians ha- has moved from the supremacy and centrality of of Jesus overall in chapter 1 to the supremacy and centrality of Jesus in us, chapter 3, because unless and until Jesus is at the center of our hearts and our minds and our affections, we don't think anything else will make sense. Until he is who we value the most, we won't be able to value other things correctly. Our only hope in this life is having more of Jesus. We boast in Christ alone, his righteousness, not our own. And we saw in chapter 3 the incredible transformation that happens when we find our identity in Jesus instead of other things. Right. I think the last five weeks have been incredibly important for us. I hope you haven't missed them, or if you have, you've gone back and listened and listened to them again. They are so transformative to our, our thinking and the way that we live. We, we set our minds on things that are above instead of earthly things. We, we put to death, actually, what is still earthly in us because we want Christ to be all and in all. And we've seen that it's a transformed heart that is ruled by the peace of Christ. And a transformed mind dwelling on the word of Christ that leads to a transformed life. Doing everything in the name of Christ. So to be a Christian is to say, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for Jesus because Jesus is not someone that we simply add to our lives. Jesus is something someone that we are willing to give up everything for so we can have him instead. Beginning of chapter 3, we have died to our old selves, our old way of living, and our lives are instead hidden with Christ. He is our life. He's not an addition, he is our substitute. As Paul said elsewhere, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, as Wilfred reminded us of this morning. Doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is simply living out our new identity in him and him alone. Now, that was chapter 3. As we move into chapter 4, which really just has two sections to it, Uh, because verse one of chapter four is part of chapter three, right? We talked about that chapter division. It should have been a verse later. Those were added later. It's not part of the inspired text. It just makes it easier for us to find things. But chapter four, starting in verse two, really only has two main parts to it. The, The last section of the body of Paul's letter to this church, which we will cover today in verses two through six. And then next week, starting in verse seven, he concludes the letter by saying hi for a bunch of Before a bunch of people, and to a bunch of people, just saying his final greetings. And so today, we are going to see the final two instructions that Paul has for this church in verses 2 through 6. But it's important to remember that even though we are focusing on two commands today, those commands are based on a theological foundation that has already been laid out in this letter. Uh, That's part of why I remind you of where we've come from, because the Bible is not interested simply in behavior modification. It is interested in a heart transformation, an internal transformation, a new life, new identity, new mind, which then transforms our behaviors. So you might remember, we didn't even get to the first command in the book of Colossians until the second chapter. Because the first chapter was all about laying this theological foundation. This is who Jesus is. And then this is who you are in him. And now, you might have noticed, as we've gotten later and later in this letter, we have seen more and more practical applications based on the reality of Jesus and our identity in him. This is part of why we think it's so important for us to go through whole books of the Bible. We, we do other things from time to time, but going through an entire book of the Bible like... Like this helps you see, because a lot of times letters move from like a theological foundation and then most of the application is actually found towards the end. The most, most books of the Bible don't just start out like, command, do this, do this, do this, do this. It first lays the foundation and then gives you application on top of that. And so we have gotten to the application portion of the letter to the Colossians, but I don't want you to think that the Bible is just a list of rules. This is building on a foundation that we've already spent a lot of time in in chapter 1, 2, and 3. So hopefully that is helpful for you. Uh, So last week, we saw these applications to that theological foundation played out within relational dynamics. Okay, so what does all this truth about our new identity in Christ mean for our marriages and for parenting and for at, at the workplace? And then this week, we get to see Paul's last two instructions for this church of young believers, and they are about the priority of prayer... And the pursuit of people. The priority of prayer and the pursuit of people. And I'm going to read that, the whole passage. And hopefully those two points are not hard for you to spot as we read through this. My points aren't supposed to be something that only I can find. It's just helping us understand the text itself. So hopefully you can spot them. And then we'll walk back through this text together. Colossians 4, 2-6. through 6. This is what the word of God says to us. Continue steadfastly in prayer So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, So pretty easy, in my opinion, to to spot uh, the two topics, prayer and evangelism, and and the connection between the two. And and I want to approach this passage with caution, because it would probably be easy to preach this text, and the main takeaway to be, okay, 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 Pastor, I I need to pray more. And I need to share Jesus more. Right? I, I I'm not sure if I've ever met a follower of Jesus who when asked says, Yeah, I think I pray enough. Or, Oh yeah, I think I share Jesus enough. Uh, those are two areas where I think it almost feels wrong to say I've got that down or I do that plenty, right? Wouldn't you, like, anyone ever say, yeah, I talk to Jesus plenty. He doesn't need to hear from me anymore. Like, you feel wrong saying that, right? You can always say, yes, I need to talk to Jesus more. Yes, I need to share Jesus more. We can always, it, always, it feels wrong to say otherwise. So, so maybe some of you already feel guilty that these things aren't greater realities in your life. So I don't want to discourage you and make you feel inadequate today because our sufficiency is where? It is in Christ. It's in Christ. And the beauty of life with Jesus is that tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. It doesn't have to be the same. Jesus changes us. And there's so many encouraging truths that I want us to see in this text that should give more purpose to your prayers and more purpose to your pursuit of people. But, but at the same time, there are lots of reasons why Prayer is commanded and prioritized in Scripture. And one of those is simply because God wants us to talk to him. He, he wants you to talk to him. We have the ear of the God of the universe. Because when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple did what? It, it tore from top to bottom. That The veil that separated God's presence on earth, the Holy of Holies, from the rest of mankind Signifying that we now have direct access to God. We don't have to go through a high priest because Jesus is our high priest. We were made for relationship with him, and the death of Jesus on the cross opened the door, opened the veil for us to be able to approach him ourselves with no fear and no shame. And so, and so that's that's the primary, that's one of the reasons why we are commanded to pray. God wants us to talk to him. He wants us to live in relationship with him and it's hard to say that you have a relationship with someone that you never talk to. But it's also clear in scripture that we are commanded to pray for more than just for the, the sake of our relationship with God. We are commanded to pray because prayer changes things. My cards on the table for you concerning prayer. I believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God, which means that God is not dependent on me to pray to him. He doesn't need me, I need him. He doesn't need us, we need him. And I also believe that in God's sovereignty, he wills to work through willing intercessors. We we don't just watch history unfold from the sidelines. No, we, we get to actively shape history through prayer. And if you hear those two beliefs and you think that they are contradictory to one another... I would humbly submit that the Bible doesn't think that those things are contradictory. The Bible says that God is sovereign over all, and that in God's sovereignty, prayer changes things. So I believe both those to be true. And and I think what Paul says in verse two is instructive in, in, in providing another perspective for us for how we should view and understand the purpose of prayer. So look at verse two again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So in prioritizing prayer, we pray with awareness. And one of the reasons we struggle to see the urgency and priority of prayer is because we often don't recognize the significance of the spiritual war that we are part of. And yes, God wants us to come to him Like a child comes to their father and say, Dad, I'm hungry. We see that in the Bible. Dad, I'm hungry. Dad, I'm having a hard day. Or guess what happened today, Dad? Right? We were made for relationship, and God wants us to relate to him like a child relating to a perfect father. And so I am now officially the birth certificate father of four beautiful children, because when you adopt, they get new birth certificates that say that they're adoptive parents. How cool is that, by the way? Adoptive parents are their their birth certificate parents. Not biological, birth certificate parents. And so I am now the birth certificate father of four children, but I am not the be-all, end-all for my kids. They have a perfect, all-sufficient, heavenly Father. And my role is simply to reflect Him and point them to Him. So we come to God like a child comes to their father. While that is true, how many of you also know that we are in a spiritual battle? And from that perspective, I've heard people describe prayer like a walkie-talkie in the hands of a soldier. The means of communication between the boots on the ground and the commanding general who has all of the backup and the ammunition in the world at his disposal. And I think this is what Paul's instruction to be watchful, be alert, should bring to our minds. Because it's the same word that is used in Ephesians 6.18. After telling the church at Ephesus to put on the armor of God, because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of darkness and spiritual forces of evil. And so after they put on the armor of God, this is what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. Look at this. This is Ephesians 6.18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. With all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is to be seen as the means through which we as soldiers in this spiritual battle communicate to our general. So maybe one, one of the reasons we don't pray like we should is because of how comfortable we are. Our Christian life doesn't look much like a battlefield. It often looks more like a country club. And we, we hang out with the people that we like. And we get to do the things that we all like to do. And it's really nice. It's nice. But maybe it's also ignoring the spiritual reality around us. And if we don't need prayer to accomplish our goals and priorities this week, then maybe we need more spiritual goals. Now, if you start to have a battlefield view of prayer, The last word in verse 2 might be confusing, so let's talk about it. Consider, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Okay, so we pray with awareness and with thanksgiving, and at first glance, a soldier communicating with his general from the battlefield with thanksgiving is a strange visual. Wouldn't you agree? That's not usually what a soldier is saying. But being a soldier in Jesus' army is different. Because we fight a spiritual battle knowing that we are not spiritually in danger. How amazing is that? We fight a spiritual battle knowing we are not spiritually in danger. We have already set up this theological foundation. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We are as secure as Jesus is if we've placed our faith in him. Our most significant death has already happened. You have died and your life is hidden in Christ. We have died to our old way of living and have been raised to new life in Christ. We, we are fighting a battle that Jesus has already won. So we don't radio in to heaven's base camp in terror, but in confidence. We are watchful. We're aware of what's happening around us, aware of the battle that we are facing, but we are also thankful because we are talking to our Jehovah Jireh, our provider who meets our every need. And because we know that the battle is going to end with the return of Jesus. He is going to win, which means that we are going to win because we are in Christ. And I think Paul modeled the combination of this prayer in chapter 1. Right at the beginning of this letter, when he shared that he always thanks God for the Colossian church as he is praying for their spiritual well-being and victory. You can go back and read that if you want to later today. We pray with awareness and with thankfulness. Look at verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us, that's Paul's missions team, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So we pray with awareness, with thanksgiving, and with intercession. And verse 3 is our reminder that Paul is writing this letter about the sufficiency and centrality of Christ, how he is reigning over every situation, how all other authorities are in submission to Jesus' authority, and he is writing this while sitting in prison for preaching the gospel. And there's not a single complaint in this letter to be found. Not a single one. He just says right here, by the way, I'm in prison for this. Verse 3, I'm in prison for this. And in asking for prayer from the Colossian church, he doesn't ask them to pray, get me out. He asks them to pray, get the gospel out. Get the word out. He is literally asking them to pray for an open door, but not a literal open door. (laughs) Open a door, not for me, but for the word Because Paul is not the one in danger. His life is hidden with Christ. He wanted more people to hear the gospel. His mentality is amazing because it's heavenly. It's heavenly. Set his mind on things above. I love verse 4. Pray that when I talk, it makes sense. I may make it clear. And I find this pretty encouraging because I view Paul as one of the greatest missionaries and evangelists ever. And he is asking a church he has never met to intercede on his behalf that through his words, the mystery of Christ would be revealed to people. That he wouldn't confuse people, but he would make it clear to people. So if the Apostle Paul needed that prayer on his behalf, you best believe that your pastors do as well, right? So next Sunday, application. Next Sunday, when you are driving here, feel free to pray, God, help Pastor Tim make sense today. I feel feel free. Biblical. Just just help him make sense. So don't don't let what he says be confusing, right? Help him make it clear, especially those to whom Christ is still a mystery. Because the Bible is not the concealment of God, it is the revelation of God. God wrote a book to reveal himself to us. He wants to be known. He's not trying to confuse people. So yes, there are truths about God that are difficult for the human mind to comprehend because he is just so unlike us. right? He's so other. He is so holy and so much greater than us. So yes, it's tough sometimes. There are aspects of God's working in the world that are mysterious to me. I might not know the answer this side of eternity. But the good news of the gospel is so straightforward. Our relationship with God was broken because of our sin and rebellion against him. Instead of us following God's good design for us, we like to do things our own way. And that separation from the holy God of the universe leads to death because he is where life is actually found. And all of our own solutions to our problem of brokenness fail because we are incapable of earning a relationship with God again. But God had a plan of redemption in place from before the foundation of the world to send himself into our brokenness in the person of Jesus. And Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived And then Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die. Jesus took the just punishment for the sins we committed against him on himself at the cross. And then he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. He ascended into heaven promising to return. So if you come to the end of yourself and place your faith instead in the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus making him the king of your life all of your sins are forgiven the righteousness of Jesus credited to your formerly guilty account you become part of the eternal kingdom of God where Jesus will reign as king forever that's the message that changed Paul's life and it's the message that changed my life I'm so thankful that I don't have to go through life depending on myself that'd be a miserable place to be. I feel so bad for anyone that tries to go through life thinking that they are the be-all, end-all, that it all rises and falls with them. If you're living life dependent on yourself, I feel so bad for you. I don't want that for you. It's so much better to depend on Jesus. It's so much better to depend on him. That's the message that I want to change your life as well. And if you believe that, If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not just called to pray for those who are in vocational ministry. Pastors and and missionaries who people might view as on the front lines of the spiritual battle day in and day out. Yes, you support them and are part of their ministry through prayer. But that's not all. This passage is not just about the priority of prayer for the Colossians. It's also about the pursuit of people. Verse 5. Walk in wisdom, this is them, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, those that don't know Jesus, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So a theme in the Bible that is impossible to miss is that God saves us and then sends us. And he doesn't send us to a pew, in case you get that impression. You don't get saved so you can come sit in a church building. He sends us to people and he sends us to places. Paul didn't say, church, you pray for my missions team and we will take care of the rest. Right in a passage about praying for missionaries, verses two, three, and four, he immediately shifts to their own mission field to instruct them on how to pursue people. And there's three, three ways that we're supposed to do that. The first way is using wisdom. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So there's a natural, built-in assumption in this command that Christians will be interacting with those who don't know Jesus. It's just assumed. Which is interesting, because remember, Paul's main motivation for writing to this church was because of the false teaching that was threatening to lead them astray. But his solution to protect them from this threat wasn't just to create a Christian bubble. Right, and that's sometimes our response to people that are teaching th- teaching things that are wrong. We're like, we gotta just stay away from all of that and just create a bubble where we don't hear any false teaching, right? And where our kids don't hear any lies or anything that isn't biblical. We just gotta create a Christian bubble for us to all live in, and then we'll be safe and happy and okay. That's not what he does. He wanted them to know Jesus and to know who they are in Christ, so that they can walk in wisdom toward. Those who don't know Jesus towards outsiders. So why do you think Paul said, walk in wisdom instead of walk in knowledge toward outsiders? Just a warning, this question has messed me up this week. And I kind of want it to mess you up too, so here we go. Why, Why does he do that? Because wisdom is the ability to use knowledge to reach worthy goals. Putting our knowledge to good use. So the goal of us knowing Jesus and knowing his word is not so we get all the answers right when there's a biblical category on Jeopardy. Although we do feel pretty good when we're smarter than Ken Jennings, right? We're like, yeah, I knew those answers and he didn't. <laughs> right? But the goal is that we would apply that knowledge to accomplish our mission to make more and better followers of Jesus. And I found connecting verse 5 of Colossians 4 to Proverbs 11.30 fascinating. So look at this on the screen. Proverbs 11.30 says this, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise, is wise. One sign of a wise person is someone who captures or wins souls. That's an old school way of describing evangelism, right? Soul winning. Soul winning. It's biblical. It's biblically accurate. And so here's, here's my question. Here's my question. When we picture a wise person, whatever image comes to your mind when you think of a wise person, why don't we mentally connect wisdom with evangelism? If we're living with an eternal perspective, I, 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 feel like, I, I feel like I could just go on a rabbit trail with this, but I'm not going to. Instead, so I just want to let that question bother you this week like it's bothered me. Why don't we mentally connect wisdom with evangelism? Why, when we think of a wise person, why don't we think of someone who is constantly sharing Jesus in a way that is winsome? And brings them to Christ. If our minds were on things above instead of on earthly things, wouldn't our desire for wisdom, which we all claim to want, right? No one raises their hand and says, I want to be foolish, right? Everyone says that they want to be wise. So why wouldn't our desire for wisdom include a desire to win people to Christ? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of. The time. So we use wisdom and we use time. Part of wisdom is recognizing that time is far too valuable to waste. Beck and I were going through pictures for the adoption party this week and putting together that slideshow that some of you saw on Friday, uh, which meant being reminded of how small our kids used to be. And, And looking at pictures of our youngest, Zayden when he was only five pounds, and being sad that he insists on continuing to get bigger, even though I tell him to stop. <laughs> the days are long, but the years are short, or so I'm told, right? We, we all know that time is precious. We have a finite amount of it on this earth. And our inclination often is to wish that we could hit the pause button. Any of you ever want to do that? If I could just press pause right now. We wish that we could make time stand still at certain moments. If, if, our, if our time was represented by an, a life-size hourglass, right, the sands of time, if it was represented by an hourglass and you just have the sand of time slowly flowing, Our inclination, if we put ourselves inside of that and underneath of that, right, is to stand below that flow and catch as much of the sand as possible, right? If we could just catch all of this time that's slowly falling, but it's really hard to hold on to sand, isn't it? Just like it's really hard to hold on to time. No matter what you do, it doesn't slow down. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. But making the best use of the time doesn't mean that we catch the time. Just like making the best use of your money doesn't mean to hold on to your money, right? It's a means to something else. And it's the same way with time. We make the best use of our time by catching not the time itself, but the opportunities that the flow of time brings us. So you don't try to plug the hole, that would be pointless, you have a net, if you will, and let the sand flow through, but catch the gems of gospel opportunity that are constantly flowing our way, right? To stop the time to plug the hole would be to stop the opportunities that are intended to flow through us through the course of time. Imagine how our lives would change if we believed that the best use of our time, the best opportunities that flow our way that we need to catch and hold on to are the opportunities to tell others about Jesus. How he has transformed us and how he can transform them. Isn't that what Paul is saying here? That making the best use of your time is sharing Christ with those who are currently outsiders, those that don't yet know him. What if our definition of living life to the fullest was someone who was just a walking billboard for Jesus? Uh, I've talked often in the last few months about how the disciples making disciples process that we're in with some at our church has just been so transforming to me and changing my mentality. And, and, I, don't, and I don't want you to stop at, Verse 4 of Colossians 4, and think that your only role is to pray for other people who are more gifted at evangelism than you. Do that, and then walk in wisdom yourself towards outsiders. Make the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we use wisdom, we use time, and we use words. Because that's how you share the gospel. And if you're starting to get overwhelmed right now uh, by the significance of these commands and how much your life would change if you decided to follow them, I want you to remember right now, your identity, Christian, is in Christ. It's in Christ. The commands in God's word are not calling us to something that is outside of us, but to who is in us and who we are in So important for you to believe that these instructions are meant to move us to a further dependence on and enjoyment of Jesus. So right here, speech that is seasoned with salt means that what we say about following Jesus should make Jesus more desirable to other people. Like when you describe your favorite dish at a restaurant, your goal is for people to say, that sounds amazing, or I need that in my life. Right? Now, now, because we're not making things up, the only way for us to fulfill Colossians 4, 6 is for us to see and savor and enjoy Jesus ourselves. When you have an amazing meal, you don't have to force yourself to tell others about it. Right? That happens naturally because sharing that joy completes the joy for you. So if, you, if telling other people about Jesus feels forced to you, because I know that's true of a lot of you. You want to do it, but it just feels forced. It never feels natural. Okay, maybe your goal for this week needs to be to go to God's word and remind yourself of how sweet and how fulfilling and how satisfying knowing Jesus is. Let the word of Christ dwell in you Richly, spend time enjoying Jesus and his word every day because telling people about Jesus should be as natural as telling them about the best meal you've had this year. The good news of Jesus is meant to be first enjoyed and then shared because there's a feast of eternal satisfaction waiting and there's more than enough for everyone to experience and enjoy and then share with others again. So we shouldn't talk about Jesus in a way that makes people wish we would stop talking. And honestly, that's what I see some Christians do. And I wish they would stop and do this instead. It is gracious, and it is seasoned with salt. We are inviting people to enjoy the most fulfilling spiritual meal they will ever have. We want them so desperately to have it because it has changed our lives. We're so fulfilled. We're so thankful. We're so grateful for what he's done, and we just have to tell them about it. And so can I just ask you a question to help you think through whether you are living on mission for Jesus how, how far back would I have to go in your calendar before I find a time that you intentionally shared Jesus with someone? How far back would I have to go in your calendar before I found a time that you intentionally shared Jesus with someone that doesn't know him yet? The question I'm asking you there is, has your pursuit of Jesus led you to pursue people? Has your pursuit of Jesus led you to pursue People. An observation I would make after thinking through this passage and the two commands that we are given is when we start coasting in our relationship with Jesus, I think these two commands are two of the first things to go. When we start coasting, we stop praying and we stop witnessing. I think if you think back through your life and the times that you're just coasting in your relationship with Jesus, you're probably not prioritizing prayer And you're probably not pursuing people. But when Jesus is supreme. And when Jesus is central. These two things will naturally be true of us. We will be prioritizing prayer. And we will be pursuing people. Again. Again, don't view these two commands in isolation. They're built on the foundation of who Jesus is, who we are in Christ. And so these commands are calling us into a further dependence on and enjoyment of him. So let's enjoy Jesus and share him with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that our sufficiency is Christ. We boast in Christ alone. His righteousness, not our own. So we know that your commands are not meant to condemn. They're not meant to riddle us with guilt and shame. But they're meant to woo us into further dependence and reliance and enjoyment of Christ. And so I pray that we would come to you and we would come to your word this week. And we would be so fulfilled. And we would be so nourished that we want to tell others about the best spiritual meal they could ever have. I pray that we would prioritize prayer and that we would pursue people for the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray, amen.